Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. love to introduce our next guest, Louise Hazel, a British Olympian, trainer, business owner, entrepreneur, and CEO and founder of Slay Gym in Hollywood, which is how I know Lou as she goes by. She has quite the resume, but as the story goes, we are not here to get all of her health tips and training tips, but instead talk about things that guided you to your achievements and your why. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to What's the Point. We're very happy to have you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So the first question that we always ask is what is your definition of fulfillment and what is your definition of success? And are they at all intertwined? Mm, Good question. Um, My definition of fulfillment, I think this has to be related to like energy, just, you know, the ability to be able to wake up every single morning and jump out of bed and be excited for what's ahead. And that's quite rare, I would say, in this day and age, especially post-pandemic. You know, lots of people experience a lot of lethargy, you know, just general malaise and fatigue, you know, boredom, all of those things. But for me, fulfillment comes from waking up at 5 a.m. and getting out of bed with my first alarm and very rarely hesitating or wanting to lie in because I'm excited about what I'm about to do. Often my 6am clients are the, you know, the, the first people I meet every single day. And so I like to schedule my diary and look forward to those people. And often when they're out of my diary in the gym, I normally train from 6am till 12 noon. So I'll train clients back to back on the hour, every hour. And when my 6am Monday client, Melissa is on holiday, we're like, yo, dude, I miss you. Like there's a general like lack in my life. So fulfillment for me comes from just being passionate about waking up and and getting to it and, you know, enjoying your work and your career. And then more importantly, enjoying the people that you get to do it with. I think that's a huge thing. And it's a huge benefit and a privilege that comes with being self-employed is that you get to choose a lot of the time, some of the time, most of the time you know, once you reach a certain element of success, who those people are. And then the question was about success, success, right? So what's my definition of success? And then is it intertwined with your definition of fulfillment? Mm. Mm, Good question. I think the two are very separate. So I think that you can be deeply successful in life, i.e. did you set out to achieve the goal or whatever you desired. So for me, as a young woman, my desire, my goal, my heart's desire was to become an Olympian. So you could say, I've been successful at that. I achieved that age 23. Was that the happiest year of my life? Absolutely not. Was it the most fulfilling year of my life? By no means was it the most fulfilling year of my life. And so are those two things intertwined? I think that they're inextricably linked but they're not mutually exclusive. Like you don't have to be fulfilled to be successful. 
And sometimes when you're successful, you're not fulfilled or happy, if that makes sense. I hope that's the right way around. And that's certainly the case for me. So successful is really just about setting yourself a goal that seems perhaps unrealistic or unattainable and going after it and achieving it. It's really much more about the doing rather than the being. So for me, fulfillment is about who am I being? Am I enjoying the person that I am, the people that I surround myself with, who I am to them every single day? And does that give me fulfillment and inner peace and calm? And then the success is something that I really enjoy because that's all about action and all about doing. Those two things to me are completely separate. Fulfillment is an emotional thing and success is an action thing. And it seems that the meaning of success has really changed for you over the years, right? Like at first it was to probably like make the Olympic team, right? And that was the goal that you had set for yourself. And then after you accomplished that, it's like, that's no longer my definition of success. I think you touched on a really interesting point. Like from the outside world, everyone will say like, oh my God, she's so successful. She went to the Olympics and and all that. But it's interesting to hear you say, you know, I wasn't fulfilled at all. Like that wasn't the most fulfilling time in my life because that's again, like why we started this podcast. We always see these people who are crazy successful in quotation marks on paper, the CEOs of this, the founder of this, but they're like deeply unfulfilled. And it's like, why? Because there is that missing link, that spark that makes you get out of bed, that passion, and you're doing it sometimes for the wrong reasons. Mm, So where, where did this like ability to, you know, accomplish something and then like, like leave it behind be like, that, that was my past. And now I want to build my next goal of the future. Cause I think a lot of people would be like, well, why don't you go to the next Olympics and spend your whole career doing just that? But you were kind of like, no, I'm going to do something else. Now I have bigger goals and bigger dreams. And this is just one part of me. Absolutely. I think that comes from an underlying sense of self-worth and, and confidence. And I think that that was somewhat nature nurture. I grew up in, um, you know, with two parents a very kind of loving and nurturing environment, although we grew up in a pub. So at the age of 10, you know, our, I would say nuclear home life turned into something completely different by way of, you know, caretaking and accessibility. And so I think from the age of 10, I learned how to become much more of an independent young adult. But my parents really instilled in me the idea that I was capable of anything. I was never talked down to, was never, there never really was anything negative in that sense in my childhood. I didn't experience someone telling me that I couldn't do anything. It was quite the opposite. They, they very much built me up. You know, my father would teach me how to change the tires of my car. He would teach me very practical skills. And, you know, my mother was pretty much like working most of the time, running the home. And so I'd be expected to kind of help out and chip in. So she kind of taught me teamwork and, and hard work, more importantly. If I wanted to have pocket money or buy new jeans, then I had to work for it. And she put me to work in the hotel. She made me clean like every Friday. So I really, it was instilled in me the value of of hard work from a young age. And I think that that, when it came later on in my career, made it easy for me to understand when the hard work had been completed. And really that came right after the Olympic Games. After London 2012, it was a home Olympics, which is so rare for most athletes. Most athletes never get to compete in their hometown. And the Olympics came to London. And at that point, I'd already won the Commonwealth gold. And so to go back to success, and I'll hopefully bring it back around, you know, success is, I think, being able to achieve something you never thought you could dream of as well. And that for me was the Commonwealth gold medal. So by the time I decided to retire from the Olympics, not only had I been successful, I'd achieved something I never dreamed possible, a gold medal at Commonwealth Games. I'd also achieved my overall goal of competing at the Olympics. So there wasn't really much else for me to do. And I was chatting to one of the girls, interestingly, in the gym the other day. And I said to her, in fact, we were having a conversation And I was like, it was almost as if my family mourned the loss of my track and field career more than I did. Because by the time I'd run that last couple of meters of the 800 meters in London, I knew I never wanted to do another heptathlon ever again. It had been a real uphill battle. I'd lost my father four years prior. I really struggled financially to support myself and bounced back to basically self-fund myself with sponsorship. It was a real kind of slog. It was like hard, hard work. And it was the type of work that no athlete should have to endure in order to have the right to compete for their country. 
because on paper, my results were there and I was good enough. But it was the fact that the funding wasn't there to support my talent. It was that my father died and my performance dropped. So therefore I was deemed not, you know, on that year when I underperformed, I was deemed as not having the same potential as I had the year before. And I'm like, well, I'm going to prove the system wrong. And I'm going to show them that you can bounce back from major traumatic life events and you can bounce back stronger. And that's when I won my gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. Wow. So you used this horrific and like you were very young, this event as something to like energize you to meet your goals. 100%. And I think that when we are really forced into a corner, I think most of us achieve our heart's desire when we're really backed into a corner, when things are really comfortable, there's no need, you know, there's no strain, there's no stress, there's no pressure. And I think you really find out who you are in those darkest moments when it's just you alone with your thoughts or alone with your grief, alone with your loss, really searching for who you're going to become. How are you going to react or respond to the life events that have played out for you and how those cards have been dealt? So how did you cope when, you know, everyone was like, you mentioned that your family was like mourning the loss of that kind of identity of yours more than you. Like, how do you kind of like take aside that noise and be like, no, no, no. Like, this is what I want to do. If you don't, if you don't agree, like I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I'm sure it wasn't just your family. Like you had a whole world, you were competing for your country. Like I'm sure there were a lot of other people out there who were like frowning upon that decision too. So how did you block that out and then move forward to achieve something great yeah. as well? And were you always like able to do that? Like, is that Definitely. a skill that's always been inherent in you? Yeah. I'm stubborn. I'm super stubborn. <laughs> so you I'm make not a decision gonna... and you commit. Absolutely. Not listening to no one. I no one like can you tell need me anything. That as a especially as a competitive athlete. 100%. You have to have this like gut instinct. And it's almost, I think, as a, not just a competitive athlete, but an individual competitive athlete. So think track and field athletes, tennis players, unlike team sports, where they're really preconditioned to work and move together as a unit. We as individual athletes are programmed to think solely about our own best interests. And so that year, Olympic year, I was like, wow, I looked at my bank account and I was like, this is as marketable as I'm ever going to be. This is the most I'm going to earn financially and fiscally from track and field. From here, this point in, it's a downward slope. Even if my performance increases, I would have to bring home a gold medal at the Olympics, which is unfortunately for me, unrealistic, as I would typically place like in the top 15 in the world, 17 to 15. So that jump for the next four years, that decision was very much one that was like a business decision. It was completely void of emotion. It was like, where do I go from here? What does the next four years look like? Well, it's going to look like more financial struggle as our sport suffered and the funds from our sport were withdrawn because all of the funds now went were going on Rio, the 2016 Olympics, the one that was then going to follow London. And so I'm like, do I want to go through the same stresses and do I want the same problems again for the next four years in order to arrive at the same place. Absolutely not. That made zero sense to me. So that stubbornness plus being very level-headed and having a really clear vision of what I wanted for my life. And I think that means the avoidance of stagnation. So to me, the idea of failure would have been to stagnate in my journey. And if I'd have stayed in the sport another four years, that's exactly where, you know, I would have ended up. So you walked away from something you otherwise loved. Absolutely. I love my track and field career, but I knew it was really time for it to come to an end. Interesting. So it sounds like like the energetic and fiscal, like the calculations of like the technical ROI were just like, this doesn't make sense. So I need to walk away from something, even though it was what you loved and what you knew, right? Primarily that Mm -hmm. was like your life. Yeah. If you're training at that level, that becomes your whole life. Yeah. It's almost like it sucked the fun out of it for you because you had to deal with so many other things that wasn't track and field, like getting the sponsorship money, the financial side, the like, I'm sure a lot of other things you had to deal with to be in your fun, right? Absolutely. If there was a blank check, 
then I'd probably still be competing today. And you know, um, now that I've set myself up in the gym, there are days when I'm like, I'm feeling fast and I'm feeling light. And I'm like, should I just enter myself for a competition? Because I never really um, fully retired. So in order to fully retire from track and field, you have to, I think, in track in the UK, submit a form. And I never sent the form in. Oh, wow. It has and to be formal. Yeah. So that was interesting. It was like closure for me, but I kind of left the door open. And I remember one of my rivals letting me know that I hadn't formally kind of like officially retired because I hadn't submitted this form. And I was like, oh, you really, you really want me to submit that form just so your journey is like somewhat kind of come to completion as well. I'm like, I don't need that. Like for me, closure comes kind of like from within. Mm -hmm. So to me, a piece of paper doesn't necessarily mean I'm done or not done. And I wanted the kind of option as well. Yeah, in case one day you wake up and you want to do it again. Yeah, I could never do it in the shape that I'm in right now. I'm absolutely battered and bruised. I feel like I've got a cracked rib as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) So I need to understand if this is just your nature Mm. or is this nurture? Like how are you? Because like, it sounds like you're a really complimentary blend of like level-headed, stubborn, driven, ambitious, I would assume competitive. Extremely, yeah. Right. So- is this something that you foster within yourself daily? Is this something that you were born? Is this like your, you know, something that your parents would have said she was like this since she was a kid? Like, how is this? I think, you know what? I think, and I what's think your it's sign? More Libra. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there's that balance. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're very calculated, but not from like a negative perspective, just very level headed. Yeah. And we're always weighing our options. So, yeah, we always think, I think about the big picture. And I also am a Libra, so I like nice shit. So I also remember thinking, I'm going to work this hard, but not be able to afford to buy myself some Jimmy Choo's. Like, what's the point? So what's the point? the point? There you go. <laughs> There's the answer. So I remember thinking, and there was always this cap as well in track and field. So once you earned in the UK above a certain limit, they means tested you out of your support. So if you are earning over $20,000, you are no longer eligible to receive support from the Federation. Does Mm, that make sense? Yeah. So I thought that was really unfair because I was like, and that's the Libra in me, because I can remember thinking, so the administrators in the office are earning more than the athletes are on the track that are fueling the sport, not receiving the funding that they need, yet the, the, you know, entry level in this organization the basic level administrators who are putting in 40 hours a week are earning more than the athletes. Yet when the Olympics come around and we put on our vests to represent Great Britain or the USA or whomever it be, we're heralded up as these heroes. Yet people really don't understand what it takes and how limiting that can be on you, I think, you know, financially and and from a personal development perspective. Because whilst you're dedicating all of your time to sport, you're not actually getting any work experience. You know, you're not putting, you know, experience on your resume. Right. But when you leave traditional, conventional. Yeah. You're not necessarily always making tons of connections unless you think very laterally that are going to help you later in life. And you could get an injury tomorrow and it will be over. So that it's a very high risk, low reward job. I wanted to ask you this. So your first when we asked the first question, you, I loved your answer. And you mentioned like waking up in the morning and feeling energized because that's something I so relate to. And it is, I think really, especially post COVID, it was like, I personally really struggled with that. Like I definitely had, I think bouts of depression of some sort, not, I don't know, maybe not as conventionally, but as it is difficult to motivate yourself in the same way, especially when after we went through that like collective trauma, have you had periods of time in your life like that? And if you have, how did you get yourself out of it? Absolutely. I can remember, and I look back and now recognize it as depression, Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely suffered depression. I think it was probably the year, maybe it was 2010, 2011. It was after I'd won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. And it was really tied to a relationship that I'd entered into. And it was a very short-term relationship of three months. And I met a guy back home in Birmingham and we hit it off. And he had a lot of kind of personal issues. And I knew that our lives were just not going to mesh because here I was trying to make it to the Olympic Games within the next 18 months. 
And he was a party boy and was overindulging in drugs and overindulging in alcohol and just going AWOL. I wouldn't see him for like three days, wouldn't hear from him. And so it was taking a lot of energy. And the person that I am, when I look back, I'm like, what on earth was I doing? Like not even the person I am today. I'm so surprised I got so involved with a person who was the complete opposite of me. And I think I had that savior complex of where, you know, it's okay. I can fix this. Yeah. And you can no, change him. yeah, it could definitely change him. And it's all right. You'll just adapt to my lifestyle or whatever. And this, I'll be good for you type of thing. Well, that was an absolute lie. It took me a long time to get over him. And um, that was my first real heartbreak. So the sport track and field never broke my heart, but I definitely suffered a number of like relationship heartbreaks along the way. And that was the first time when I genuinely struggled to get out of bed. And I remember going to, you know, having an appointment every single day at the track and I remember just feeling so heavy, like my body did not want to work. It was almost as if I had the flu. And so when you think about heartbreak and love sickness, it is a malady. It is an illness. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize, oh, I'm actually not well. And I was trying to treat my body as if it was the same as any other different Wednesday. And it was not. I didn't realize that I was recovering from a flu and that flu was love sickness and grief and loss. You know, that was very unique to me because I didn't know that somebody in my life, you know, other than my father or family members could have such an impact on me and, you know, a negative impact on my goal, my success, where I wanted to go. And so I think, you know, what did I do to snap out of it? I can remember having a calendar on my wall and thinking I'm not about to go down like this and still having that fire within my belly. And I remember just cutting them off. Like literally I'm not texting him. I just remember crossing off every day. I'm like, okay, 30 days, no contact. Like don't let him text you. Don't text him. Don't check in. None of that nonsense. Like you need to actually survive right now because right now you're not, can't even think about thriving. I wasn't even surviving. I just didn't even want to do anything. I would get to the track or go out running and I'd just be in tears. I just couldn't. And so 30 days. And I remember getting to the 14th day and I stopped crossing off the days because on that 14th day, I didn't need to cross off the days anymore. I wasn't waking up and thinking about him first thing. I was thinking about myself. And so that was a very, very short period of time to snap it back around. And I think it's because I've had so many tools in my you know, in my arsenal already that I'd been using because of track and field. I also always had mental resilience. I also always had that toughness. I always was putting myself first. So it didn't take me so long to get back to myself. Right. And so that's what, you know, I think when it comes to depression, it's really about reminding yourself who you are and you have to put yourself first. And you have to start with the basic things, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, going outside, getting some fresh air, going to the gym, really taking care of yourself and doubling down because they always say, you know, no one's, no one is going to take care of you better than you'll take care of yourself. Yeah. And so it's about understanding what needs to be done and then accepting what needs to be done. Cause I think you know, that can be very hard. And then having the tools to do what needs to be done. If you're getting stuck at any one of those things, then you need to figure out how you get help. Some people might know what needs to be done, accept it, but they might not have the tools. You know, you might need to call someone to pull you out, you know what I mean, of bed every morning. Right. Yeah. It seems like discipline is like a very common theme throughout so many things, right? How you handle like a depression spurt or how you handle, you know, starting your gym after being an athlete, how you handle being on the field, like all of that. It's like a constant theme of discipline. And I think it's interesting. You mentioned earlier the fact that track was like a solo sport, like tennis. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember watching the documentary, I forget what it's called on Netflix, about the tennis players. Breakpoint. Breakpoint. Mm -hmm. And it talks a lot about like mental health, right? Because it's like you're serving and in your head, if, if those thoughts aren't positive, it's like, you're not going to be able to perform. So I think, I don't really know what question I'm trying to ask here. It's more of like, like, how do you keep your mind 
with like positive, uplifting, encouraging thoughts when you're like, hear the gun and you're about to like, you know, get on the track or in that moment when, you know, you were dealing with the heartbreak, like I'm going to create a calendar and I'm going to check things off because I know myself I'm better than this. Like, how do you change the voice from like the inner critic to the, the positive one to not only help you succeed on the track, but also in life? Yeah. How would you define to add to that, like the mental resilience you mentioned, like how do you, how do we become mentally resilient? Yeah, how do you cultivate that? <laughs> mm, good question. How do you cultivate mental resilience? Well, I think you find out exactly who you are when those like negative voices come knocking. And I think if they haven't knocked for you, they will do in some point of your life. You know what I mean? And so everyone is going to have to answer the door. And The interesting thing is when I suffered that heartbreak, there wasn't negative self-talk. There was just like, I'm tired. I feel heavy. Genuinely felt like genuine sickness I needed to recover from. But when you talk about like the negative self-talk, there was one time in my life when that really, really came through. And that was when I was in the middle of my competition, winning the Commonwealth Games. I was in first place. And we had 30 minutes before the end of the javelin to the 800 meters, the last event. And I went into the 800 meters and I had a 150 point lead, a really good buffer. And I needed, it was around about 10 or 12 second buffer from the next girl. So she had to beat me by 10 or 12 seconds to win the title. And she was a really good 800 meter runner. And so in that 30 minute break between the javelin and the 800 meters, all of the heptathletes would go underneath the stadium into our rest break room. And you would basically visualize and prep and rest before the next event. And as I laid my head down on my mat, that was when I started to experience negative voices for the first time. I was thinking, am I going to trip up? Am I going to get a cramp? And I'd never, ever experienced any of this before in my life during track and field. I was always the athlete that was like, let's fucking go. I'm up for it. Like, you're all going to die today. Let's go. And I can remember being in a hurdles race. It was the like national universities championships. And there was a group of heptathletes and a group of hurdlers. And typically us heptathletes, like that's one of our seven events. And I remember sitting there with the girls and there's, we were maybe four and four, four hurdlers and four heptathletes. And I said to the girls, may the best heptathlete win. And they were just like, oh, I was just like, yeah, that was pretty harsh. But I came out and won the race that day because I knew we were just fitter and stronger. And they knew, I'm like, this is either between you, me, or do you know what I mean? It's between us three. Like this is, this unfortunately, for whatever reason, you haven't done the work. It's between us three and whoever's going to take it today is going to take it. I'll be proud of you. Let's go out and have a good race. And so when you're in tip top shape, it's fun. Being competitive is really fun until you're winning. And then that's the most scary place to be. So that's when I really had to answer to myself. Like this wasn't the university's championships. This was my gold medal on the line, you know, and it, could have been already around my neck. And I remember thinking, if I fall, if I get a stitch, you know, then that's it, it's gone. All of the six events that I've done prior to this moment mean nothing. Like all of the years of training mean absolutely nothing from the age of 15 right up to the age of, I think I was around about 23, 24. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Me nothing. It literally hangs on this one moment. And I remember just being like, oh my God, like this is where you have to answer to yourself. 
it's like a really deep moment. And I remember pushing the thoughts to the back of my mind and really replacing them with positive thoughts. So thinking about how quickly did I need to run the first lap? How quickly, therefore, can I break that down? What's the first 200 meters? Okay, I'm going to visualize myself running through that first 200 meters. I'm going to visualize myself feeling strong and looking strong going through the 400 meters. And then when I get to the final 200 meters, I'm going to power it home. And so rather than think of myself as falling over, rather than think about getting a stitch and limping off the track, the visuals that are popping into my head of failure, I was like, no, like you're a bad bitch and you're going to go out there and get what's yours. And so that was a completely different person that showed up. And although when I stepped out onto the track at 400 meters, I was tired and I was fatiguing, I never once let go of the idea. And I kept repeating the whole way round, like, go, go, go. And even though I was trying to run my hardest in that last 100 meters and it was tiring and I didn't have it in my legs, I didn't once give up on the idea that I was like a bad bitch. It was as simple as that. And when I crossed the line, I still didn't know whether I'd won. It wasn't until like a minute later and your name flashes up on the screen and it's like gold. So it seems also it's like you took this like massive goal of yours and then you broke it down into steps. So while you were freaking out internally, you were like, okay, no, I'm going to just the first 200 meters. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of like broke it down into steps, which I think relates a lot to just life, right? Like we Mm -hmm. always think if we want to start a business, we we hear the saying all the time, like 99.9% of people don't actually execute on this business because they get so overwhelmed by the large picture that they don't actually go into like the baby steps of it. Um, And I think like, that's like a very important tool. But also what I wanted to touch on from that is like, how did you develop the toolkit needed to talk yourself out of that in the moment? You were like, I'm going to just visualize like, I don't know about you, Jasmine, but I learned that like much later on in life of like visualization and affirmations and all of those things. Like I didn't have those tools when I was 22 years old. How old were you? I think I was 22-ish, something like that. So like how did you- Is that something you learn as an athlete? I feel like- No, I think it's something Beyonce teaches you. This was like 2010. It was a big like Beyonce moment. And there was that phrase, like what would Beyonce do? Yeah. Do you remember? And yeah. it's like, what, what would they do? Yeah. Absolutely. And she'd just be sassy and she'd just be fabulous doing whatever she was going to do that day. And I was just like, that's the energy. So, you know, nowadays that would convert to like main character energy. Mm-hmm. Um, very TikTok of you. Very TikTok. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I think it was really, how do you cultivate that? I think you embodied that you become it. I think there has to, it has to be a seed in you already. You know, I think the interesting thing that I noticed about my other training partners and other teammates were some people were big characters, some people were extroverts and some people were more introverts. And that's not to say that their performance couldn't be equally outstanding, but it's about sometimes you, there's a quiet confidence and sometimes there's a loud, brash, obnoxious like confidence. Mm -hmm. And my competitor was loud and brash and obnoxious, but my inner core was very calm, very, very calm and very grounded. And I'd say that I live more in that person now than I do like the external competitor who's just chaos. So when you decided to end your career, leave the door open, but like for now, Mm -hmm. Is that when you decided to open a gym or go into training? Like, how did that idea come about? And were you scared, sad, fearful? Like, did you have a moment of like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. What do I do next? Because I think that's often for athletes, especially models, a lot of careers that like, you know, you have an expiration date. Yours was kind of a choice, but, and it still is, but you know, where they have that moment of like, I'm not gonna be able to do this forever. Right. Absolutely. So like, what was your, like Uh how, and if you had doubts or an identity crisis or like, did you freak out? Were you like, what do I, like you said, you know, you're not building your resume in the traditional sense. Can I add to that? Also, like, did you know what you wanted to do after or like before or after you decided to quit? Okay, I'm going to give you the fake answer and then the real answer. Okay. Because I caught myself the other day and I'm like, actually, that's not true. So my fake answer is (laughs) that I dumped the sport. Like I dumped the sport before it dumped me. And that means I went out for me at the top. I achieved the Olympic dream. I got the gold medal and I went out in a position of strength. 
Um, I didn't go out like a lot of athletes go out when they're a little bit past their best and then they get injured and then they can't recover from the injury. And it's this, this huge battle back and forth. And it becomes this like emotionally abusive relationship where you're really not reaping any rewards. Now that's like very true, but the more true answer is I can remember being, I think we were in the Czech Republic one day and I was running a race with my teammate, Katerina Johnson Thompson. She was a younger heptathlete. She was coming up very fast and very strong in our event. So there's myself, Jessica Ennis, who was the gold medal winning heptathlete and Katerina. So we have easily like three girls, like in the top 20 in the world, very competitive event in the UK. And I can remember running a 200 meters, which is one of my favorite events and one of my strongest events and one that I'm used to winning. And I got to the bend and Katerina, who was 18, I think at the time, had already put three or four meters on me. And I was like, what the fuck? And I remember literally just trying to hold on for dear life. She ran past me so quick. And that honestly was the day when I like, I knew, and that was the Olympic season. I was like, oh, the next generation of athletes aren't coming. They're already here. And that's when I knew the lifespan of an athlete is a cycle and is cyclical and you're there to be replaced by the next generation. And the beauty of the event is that the next generation is supposed to be faster. They are supposed to be stronger. They are supposed to beat your records. Like you're not supposed to stay a champion in the history books forever. You're supposed to have your moment and you're supposed to face the humility of returning to being just human again. Because for that moment of glory, you're superhuman and you're supposed to experience that. And then I think there's the humility that you're supposed to experience. And I think that is like the life cycle of an athlete. And I think it's the athletes that don't accept the humility and the fact that it's a cycle that often have the hardest time when it comes to transitioning out of the sport and allowing the cycle to take over them, allowing their careers to die down, allowing themselves to not be public figures and them to not be recognized in the streets. And so when you talk about how did I transition from track and field over to the gym in Hollywood, I moved into television. And that I would say was the the gap, the bridge, because television still kept my profile really high in the UK. In fact, it increased my profile because all of a sudden I was competing on shows like, you know, the equivalent of whatever, Strictly Come Dancing or whatever you guys have, Dancing on Ice. So my profile post-Olympics actually grew. People would see me on television and recognize me from a show and be at events with celebrities and things like that. I was on the scene. And so it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles where I had to really let go of all of that and really start from scratch. British, anonymous, because track and field is not a humongous sport here. I am an Olympian. And so that's a humongous achievement. And people love the fact that we can talk about sport and, you know, it's a huge advantage in in this town, but no one knows me. I'm completely, can walk down the street, go to Air One, go to Trader Joe's, go anywhere I want in flip-flops and no one really care. And that to me is like, was really a journey and a lesson in humility and whether or not I could leave behind the need to be a public persona in order to pursue my purpose of serving women in their journeys and in their fitness. And so I had this kind of like, kind of come to God moment. It's like, what's important to you? Being on television or helping this lady achieve the things that she didn't think that she was able to achieve, helping her to achieve her gold medal. And that to me, when we wrap it back down, we talk about fulfillment was way more fulfilling than cutting a check or an endorsement deal. And that's pretty much how I live my day-to-day life. Right. So that you're in a way you're paying it forward. You're like, I've done this and I, I can kind of like step out of the spotlight for a minute to help other people do the same. 100%. Like in my heart, I, have, I know I have so much to give in terms of support and knowledge. And, you know, we've really only seen a flicker of it. I get very, you know, I love my gym is you've been there, you know what it's like. It's that's really where there's a concentrated energy of what it is I do for people and how I help them. And then I'd say, you know, on a public perspective, you've got whatever Instagram and YouTube. And I've really not shied away, but purposely not cultivated and purposely not put a ton of energy there because my focus has been on looking after these people. And now for the first time, we're going you know, back into podcasting ourselves 
And now we're starting to spread that message and allowing ourselves to be seen again as a brand, as a gym, myself as an individual. And this feels completely right in terms of timing. And it feels like it's coming from the right place as opposed to this need to be seen, which I think is a humongous problem and a reason as to why so many of us feel so unfulfilled. It's like our ego is getting in the way of our fulfillment. Yeah. And also our craft, whatever that be, but more importantly, our purpose, you know? I think, you know, because there's a lot of, I can't even quote where this is from, but in many articles, books, et cetera, like even I was reading a finance book the other day and it was like, everyone just like has this resistance to being average, right? Like, especially in this day and age, everyone wants to be the most rich, the most famous, the most followers, the most likes. And it is this like external validation, this need to be seen. Like, I think that's such a powerful thing you just said. Like we do all have this desperate, we're so desperate to be seen. First of all, I think a big part of why we're not being seen is because we're getting lost on our phones mm-hmm. and on our screens. Yeah. But aside from that, I, what is that? Like, why are we also desperate to be seen? Are we not seeing, are we not being seen by the people we love? Are we I don't not think seeing we're being ourselves? Seen ourselves? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that. I don't think we see ourselves because so we we're see, looking for everyone else to see I think us. It was, did Joe Dispenza say that? Like, we see what other people think of us. Like, mm-hmm. we don't see ourselves mm-hmm. based on our lens. Like, we'll see ourselves based on like what you, Jasmine, think of Annabelle. Like, yeah, what I off. think you think of me. Yes. Yes. Which is so like crazy, crazy yeah. and so. <laughs> mean to ourselves like why are we doing that to ourselves yeah, absolutely and you can sense that desperation to be seen and 100%. i'm sure i've like that you can sense it in everyone yeah, and anyone like when, including myself yeah. when people post certain things and even i've catched myself doing it it's like i'm posting something so that i can be seen yeah right it's like how do you remove your ego and i mean i just had a child and i'm i'm trying i'm struggling not struggling but i'm noticing myself when I am leading with my ego mm-hmm. or when I remove my ego and parent from that place, it's like, what does actually she need versus like, what do I need? Even it's like, I'm on like a time limit. Right. And I, but she needs to burp and she hasn't burped yet. It's like, she can even sense that. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, well, it's not about me. It's about something else. Yeah. And how do we remove our ego from situations for, for business, personal, everything mm-hmm. so that we can personally be more fulfilled. I think well, one of the things you said earlier was, you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is to have real conversations and you can't have real conversations unless you're being authentic, right? Stripped back. And I think our lives are a mixture of all of those things. They are a mixture of glamour, excitement, fatigue, illness, filters, unfilters, you know what I mean? Verbally, physically, visually. And so I think when it comes to like, how do we portray ourselves online, in person, it's really about letting people have the full picture and the broad spectrum. If you need to cry, cry. You know what I mean? If you want to scream and shout, scream and shout. If you want to be happy, be happy. But being comfortable enough to be open with wherever you're at in that particular moment in that particular day. And I think that comes down a lot of the time. People always ask us that day or in a day, or how are you? And we just go over it and we're like, oh yeah, I'm good. Thanks. But we never really take the time to be like, (sighs) actually, I'm struggling. But it's also this idea that we need a tie to perfection too. It's like, it goes back to the same thing. It's like, is it ideal that the lawn blower is going on during this podcast? No, but like it's real life. And this is like what happens. And we're not here to have like to set a standard of perfection. We're here to like share the, yeah. Well, and I'm sure your like approach to vulnerability and authenticity, because I was just going to say like, I feel like personal training, getting your hair done, like all of these people in your lives that you go to, it becomes a therapy session. Yeah. If you have that connection with the person, like 100%. You open up, you're letting everything about your life. You become best friends. It's like, I think that's probably also adds to your success, being able to see people and, and allow people to see you. hundred percent. There's a great deal of vulnerability in being a personal trainer and sharing that journey with someone. Mm-hmm. You basically become a passenger on their bus. You're kind of shouting from the back seat, go left, go right. And it's like guiding, but you cannot as a personal trainer, grab the wheel and steer it for someone. And actually I did this this morning and I, and you know, it's something I'm really working on because it's much easier for me if I open up your app and say to you, okay, this is what you need to eat. 
da 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 and uh, there you go, off you go, go do that. And that's what everybody wants from their personal trainers. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I'm like, as a personal trainer, it's my job to let you experience what you need to do and feel what you need to do and accept what you need to do and understand what you need to do and cultivate the tools to do what you need to do. So it's much more than just like, oh, this is a 30 day process. One of my clients this morning, we just checked in and she had the lowest, her aim was to lose body fat. And she had the lowest body fat she's had since we've been working together in about two years. And I said, the journey is a long one. And more importantly, her one has been really beautiful. I'm like, first and foremost, you learned how to turn up to the gym and you started to get, you know, that buzz. And then you realize turning up to the gym is great, but it's not enough. And this only really clicked into place for her very, very recently. And she now is at the point where she's marrying her training with her nutritional goals. And as a result of doing that, her results are coming finally after two years. She's really done a 180 in terms of her lifestyle. She's really doing the work. So it's one thing to sit there, you know, any of us and think about the dream of what do our lives really want to look like? What do I want my life to look like? What do I want my job to look like? How do I want my relationship to feel? Well, the answer really is, you know, what level of work are you willing to put in? Because it doesn't matter whether it's a relationship, doesn't matter whether it's a child, doesn't matter whether it's a new job. The work is really the same especially if you want it to work and be successful. The question is, what are you willing and accepting? Like, what are you willing to do? And to that end, will you work with your husband? Yes, I do. Which is very interesting and like a different, interesting dynamic. And if... It really is. We're happy to cut this if you don't want to go here. But the other day we were, when I was warming up, you had told me, and I didn't know this, that you guys had broken up at some point. Oh, yeah. And gotten back together. Tell us a little bit about that. Like the love story, yeah. working together. I mean, that's... Absolute shit show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So my husband, Eric and I, we met in the gym in Equinox. And um, he was working there at the time as a PT manager. And I remember seeing him like on the first day and thinking, I need to stay away from this guy because I will totally make him my boyfriend. And <laughs> I remember when I first met him, we were both in relationships and I just was like, oh, he's tall and handsome, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then I became single after about four months. And I was like, yeah, I'd definitely make that guy my boyfriend. And I need to stay away from him because I was trying to stay single all summer and just have a breather. Are you like, typically a serial monogamist? Yes. Okay. Oh my God, Jasmine, I don't think I'd been single since the age of like 18. Really? It was bad. And oh. I, that was really the time when I started to see myself and I was caught, you know, catching up to my own bullshit a bit. So I was taking a breather and it was really good for me. I lived in the gym at the time. So I was in the, current in the gym. gym. Really? Yeah. So every night I would pull out a mattress me and my former boyfriend split up and I moved into the gym. So the downstairs cupboard where all of our equipment is, was my wardrobe. So I'd have my party dresses and Jimmy shoes so and funny. no one would know. And I just lived in the gym. Oh my and gosh. Um, anyway, long story short, Eric and I met in the gym and I remember chatting to him and being like, oh, how's your summer going? He's like, oh, not very good. He's like, I split up with my girlfriend. And I was like, yes. <laughs> And I was like, oh, he's going to have a terrible summer. Let me just leave him to it. I was like, oh, that's a shame. He's like, I'm like, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to go to Seville. I'm like, don't go to Seville, go to Barcelona. If you're going to hit Spain, go to Barcelona with the boys. You're going to have a great time. And I was like, I'll catch up with him on the flip side. So um, we caught up like, you know, a few months later. I'm like, did you go to Barcelona? No, he just stayed in Los Angeles. So I was like, okay, cool. And then that night I slid in his DMs and we went out had um, a little tea and biscuits at the Soho house. And I was like, okay, this guy is really cute. I definitely want to see him again. And the next day I invited him to Palm Springs because I would do solo trips. And he came to Palm Springs and then that was it. We were straight off. We went for this huge hike where we just chopped it up and we were talking really openly. I was like, we were just going into past relationships, why it didn't work, why we're an idiot, all of those things. It was very transparent. And then... Like I would say he hates the word like toxic, but our relationship became very toxic. We didn't know how to argue. So our arguments would become very like shouty. And I'm just like, this is so draining. I can't, I've never had this energy with anyone before in my life. And so I'm like, it's him. He's the problem. And he's probably thinking it's her. She's the problem because he's never had that kind of chemistry dynamic. It was just so unhealthy for us. And we were just getting so worn down. And so 
prior to the pandemic, I think it was like the February, we ended up splitting up. Right before the pandemic? Yeah, we ended up splitting up before the pandemic. Um, maybe <laughs> like two weeks before. Okay. And uh, I remember, you know, when you have like a boy... such crazy timing. Yeah. How long were you guys dating at that point? We'd been seeing each other, I think, since like the August, like maybe beginning of August. So August, September, December. Is that right? August, September, October, November, December, January. Like six So like months. six, yeah, six or seven months. And um, yeah, it just wasn't working at mm-hmm. all. And we split up and we went our separate ways. But prior to that, it was like, oh, you're dumped. No, you're dumped. It was like back and forth, back and forth. Right. Too much energy, too much stress. And then the pandemic arrived and he would always watch my stories on Instagram. And I hated that. Post breakup. Yeah. Post breakup, always kind of watching. Social media sucks. Watching, but never texting, watching, but never reaching out. So I blocked him from all of my social media accounts. I'm like, if this guy wants to talk, then it's going to have to be in person. But I really wanted to get back with him. And I took like a moment, like a good couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, we've made a terrible mistake. Like, I really, really missed him, but I couldn't go back because I was like, he's never going to believe that I've had this come to God moment in such a short moment of time. And when I look back, we were both bringing a lot of baggage into the relationship. He was bringing past trauma and past hurt. And I was bringing like probably the leftovers of a you know relationship that should never have existed. And we were just really not connecting. So long story short, four months later, he reached out it was that George Floyd had passed and there was a lot of turmoil in Hollywood where the gym was. And, you know, there was lots of crime being committed. Shops were being looted, windows were being smashed. And the protests were a time, I think the early doors of the protests, there was a lot of a sense of real insecurity in Hollywood and fear. And um, he reached out to make sure that I was okay. And I was out at the gym and I was like, yo, of course I'm in the gym. Where else am I going to be? This is my home. I'm good. And more importantly, what are you going to do if I'm not? Like, why are you even calling? Like texting, what's the point? So I called him up and I called him out on on his bullshit. And I was like, yo, why are you calling? Like, why are you texting me though? And he was just like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, do you still care though? And he's just like, well, I haven't really thought about it. I'm like, what? You haven't thought about me for the past four months. At this point, it had been four or five months. No, I haven't really thought about it. I was like, well, why don't you take the night to think about it and then let me know how you feel in the morning? And we talked for, you know, a couple of hours. And then the next day we started like the journey of like rekindling our relationship. And it was a slow one. And he was very standoffish and he had his guard up so hard. That's tough. So, so hard. And I just knew I just had to keep kind of showing up and just being solid and stable and that he needed to feel secure and eventually his guard would finally come down. And it took a good, probably a good month to six weeks before we could get back to a normal place where he felt safe again. And then, you know, fast forward a year and, you know, we're closing out the pandemic together. We're opening a gym. I built out the top part of the gym so he could, you know, start having a few clients. Where your bed was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we moved, we bought, an, well, bought, we moved into an apartment together I was just like, we need to, like, either we're doing this or we're not. Like, I'm all in and I'm not trying to have a failed relationship. I want a successful relationship. So let's just do whatever that takes. And so within a few months of getting back together, we were living together. And then within a year, we were married and we've been married legally for two years and our wedding is in two months. Oh, wow. Congratulations. What a beautiful story. That is amazing. I didn't realize. So how long... In total, have you guys been together? Good question. Um, what are we now? We're coming I up guess August. 2019. 2019. Okay, yeah, almost so four, four years. years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you guys work together and yes. you figured out how to argue. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're doing better, way better. We still kind of revert back sometimes to like old tactics. That's why my boyfriend and I broke up. Yeah. What, just learning how to... We didn't know how to argue. Yeah. It's really still important. Learning. Communication. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And... Also compassion and just learning, like I'm way better at just not, you know, getting super boiled over and heated. And I think that's because I've taken the time this year to be in like flow mode. My mother passed. Oh no. Yeah. Like 18 months ago, two years ago. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So that, you know, was another traumatic loss and like a completely different experience to losing my father because now, you know, 
whatever, 35 and without parents. And I'm just like, well, this is interesting because you're now like the head of your household. Like there's nobody to refer to. There's no, the children never grow up having grandparents and really, you know, there's all of those things to navigate. Yeah. And so there was a lot more grieving and loss and growing to do in the past two years. Do you think that really shifted the way that you kind of approach life too, I would assume? I think I probably approached it with the same gusto. I was like, okay, the last time round it was my gold medal. This time round is like the next journey. And I think the next journey is the journey that's the human journey and also like the next phase of career. So for me, it will be having children, building a family, but then, you know, building another baby as in another business. Mm. And it's really weird how I can only explain it sometimes how I felt from my perspective when both of my, each of my parents passed away in a weird sense, there's fortification. Like I always felt, you know, when my father passed, I actually came out and felt fortified and stronger eventually. And then the same with my mother, even more so with my mother, because I think she was such like a fighter and such a spirit in my life. And I can see the ways in which we're really similar and I can catch myself saying the things that she would have said. And so that's really interesting. You never get that sense of like, I'm not alone. It's just, you know, things have transitioned and things have changed. Yeah. Grief has a weird way of bringing upon huge inner growth that you would have not had before and really getting to know yourself. It kind of like knocks you to the bottom and you have to build yourself back up. So you are forced to face your demons and face the things that you may not have focused on before. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like life does that to me all the time. I feel like it's one thing after another. I'm like, oh, here we are again. You, know? you feel stronger every time? Um, Not, you know, in the immediate moments on aftermath, absolutely not. You know, every single time, you know, when there's a big loss in life, it's gut-wrenching, but you call upon the resources and the tools that you know you've had in the past and so I feel like the process to coming back to yourself and becoming whole again I would say get shorter but it just is I think it's just less painful because you know what to expect so this time around one of the things that I experienced was surrender and I don't think I did that when my father died when my father died I fought you know and I came out fighting and I was like in fight mode and probably still in fight mode until, you know, a few years ago. And then this time I was able to experience the grief and loss of my mother through the lens of surrendering. Yeah. And that was much more healthy. I think that surrendering also plays a big importance in fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if without surrender, I don't think that you can truly be fulfilled and, and kind of move with life's flow. And in order to move with life's flow, I think you really need to surrender to like the forces at hand. We Mm -hmm. are not in control. You know, the universe is in control, all that kind of stuff. Um, So to bring it back, Mm -hmm. what's your point? Mm. I think my point is to, I'm going to say something that my nan always said to me, and that was just go out there and do your best. And I think that's probably, you know, very much echoed in what we do at Slay every single day. You know, this life is about what your, not what your body looks like and all of those things. It's about what your body can do. We break it down to that very simply. Your body, your mind, your spirit, your heart, every single day will have a different level of capacity. So literally just do your best. I love it. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, girls. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.